Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Aaron Bassani. This evening, my co-host is the inestimable Michael Walker. Michael, how are we? Uh, very well. Raining outside, cosy in my bedroom, ready to talk for an hour about politics with you, Aaron. Raining outside, cosy in your bedroom. You could have been an R&B, Michael. I've heard you sing. You're not all that bad. Coming up later on tonight's show, a top Tory MP says they should be paid more money for their job. Real shock there. A leading SNP figure is sensationally quitting politics and Labour, as well as the Tories, don't seem to care about basic civil liberties. There's a theme running through those stories, isn't there? First story. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak faced a grilling from MPs today. Appearing before the Commons Liaison Committee, he was asked about a whole range of issues. We'll start with his handling of the scandal around his predecessor, Boris Johnson. Following their investigation into Johnson, the Privileges Committee published a report calling out the Johnsonite Tories, who described it as a kangaroo court. So the Privileges Committee has accused seven MPs of trying to undermine and impugn its work. The Leader of the House has condemned this. Do you think that they should apologise to the House? Uh, I haven't actually gone through the report yet, so... You haven't read the report? Uh, no, I haven't been through the report yet in detail. I've seen it being reported, and I've been very clear in the past that... But you asked Stack Goldsmith to apologise? Yes, because he's a... So minister. you have read it sufficiently to note that Zach Goldsmith should apologise? Yes, I've read the findings report. I haven't read the report from cover to cover, no. But it's I have about read three the pages long. Right, but I've seen but the you've findings. Read... You know that Zach Goldsmith ought to apologise, but you haven't got an opinion about whether the other seven. Ah, because apologize. there's a difference between Zach Goldsmith's role as a minister, uh, and I think that wasn't consistent with him being a minister. Yes. Ah, so you have read the report? That I, I have not read the, every page of the report. Okay. Sorry, which are you talking about? Which reports? Sorry, anyway. there are two reports. The report that we're considering next week, the one in which it says that the, the committee thinks that the seven members of Parliament, all of your political party, were seeking to in, impugn and undermine the committee report. Let me ask you something. Else. I'm not on top of all the relevant literature. I haven't got time for that. It's three pages long, Rishi. For the record, by the way, it's not. We like accuracy here at Navarra Media. It's five pages long without the annex, but Chris Bryant's point still stands. It's not war and peace or the complete works of Shakespeare. And next up, uh, Labour's Chris Bryant asked the Prime Minister why he continually fails to attend Prime Minister's questions. Remind us when the Prime Minister last missed two Prime Minister's questions in a row. Uh, as I said, I, 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 I don't know, but yeah. as I said, I'm... Well, I don't know, it's, it's important. Is the Honourable Gentleman suggesting that I, I don't attend the NATO summit, which I'm not in control of the dates of? No, I'm suggesting that you should be attending Prime Minister's questions and... Um, and not attending the NATO summit. Made, and you should have made the statement to the House of Commons because your own ministerial code says that that's what you should do. So your view is so that... You didn't... Your view is that we should not be attending the... NHS celebration or the King's uh, coronation celebration in Scotland or indeed the NATO summit. I mean, that, that's a perfectly okay. reasonable point of view. L but let me ask so you a different worth question. Pointing you out the leader of the opposition you, also okay. will be speaking. We're talking about your at turning the, up uh, in Parliament. NHS, we're talking uh, about NHS, your, uh, talking about your respect for Parliament. You didn't turn up for the Owen Paterson uh, votes at all. That's right, isn't it? Uh, I, I can't recall. You didn't turn up for the Boris Johnson um, votes at all, did you? Uh, no, I was at a, a charity dinner for Jewish care. <laughs> I think that's uh, some cutting it fine, I would argue, since um, other members of Parliament who were at the same dinner with you and left after you did manage to get back for the vote. Uh, I think, uh, with greatest respect, I think their role and my role at the dinner probably slightly you, you different. You chose not to be there, didn't you? Uh, that's that's no, twice. Chose, on two rule-breaking moments, you chose uh, not to be in Parliament. But uh, yesterday, you opined on the rules of cricket. Uh, I, Take I us through that. Uh, I... I chose to fulfil my obligation to an incredible charity for whom that is one of their significant fundraising moments of the year. At my presence there was something that they had asked for, and actually me being there and being able to thank their volunteers okay. and donors was something that they appreciated. Others were and there. Wes Streeting was there as well. He managed uh, to get uh, back Again, to with, it, with the greatest respect, I, I think his role and my role at that dinner were probably slightly different. Uh, and okay. I'm, I'm very happy to Fine. talk All about right. the rules of cricket, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah, uh, but not about thing. rule breaking in Parliament. I love the, the finer aspects of conversational English. With the greatest respect, he may not have had the same role I had. Translation for non-British English speakers. The guy's a fucking nobody. I'm the Prime Minister. Of course I don't play by the same rules. Michael, what did you make of all of this? It did really feel like uh, the Prime Minister hadn't done his homework and he got caught with his trousers down. 
Potentially. I mean, I suppose the, the other report that maybe he was talking about was the, you know, the original Privileges Committee report into Boris Johnson, which was about 105 pages long. So maybe he was getting confused with his Privileges Committee reports. I mean, in a way, I do think that the Prime Minister of the country probably does have better things to think about than this. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, I assume it is cowardice, which is the reason why he didn't turn up to to the vote and endorse the committee report. He doesn't want to cross certain Conservative Party members or MPs who are still very much in favour of Boris Johnson. At the same time, I mean, we're facing stagnant wages, you know, an, an incredible cost of living crisis. The NHS is collapsing. We're not meeting our climate targets. I think the idea that Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, should be going through with a fine tooth comb all the ways that Boris Johnson might have broken the rules or various MPs might have tweeted in a way which upset the Privileges Committee, it seems a little bit small fry to me. I also do think that the whole Privileges Committee crew seem a little bit jumped up, you know, this idea that some people criticise their first report, so they had to write a report about the people criticising their first report. Like if anyone criticises the second report, they're going to write a third report. This whole idea that you can't criticise reports or you'll become subject to one, I find, it, it, it reminds me of sort of Labour and the HRC and all of this stuff. And it's just like, how dare you question procedure? And I think questioning procedure is fine. I mean, I think obviously the reason Boris Johnson had to resign is because there was systematic rule breaking in Parliament and people really, really cared because they'd been following rules when it was incredibly significant to them, quite rightly. You know, people missed funerals, people struggled with their mental health, people didn't visit people who were dying to see that in Downing Street they were systematically breaking the rules. Of course, that was unacceptable. Of course, Boris Johnson had to go. But I do kind of feel like it's getting a bit meta now. So now the scandal is about how people respond to the original scandal and how they respond to the original response to the original scandal. And it probably is somewhat time to move on. I think there's something to that about the sort of genre of politics that comes from many Labour MPs, centrists in both political parties, which is this real emphasis on procedure and, you know, parliamentary protocol and all these things. And I think you're right to say that obviously the Prime Minister should be abreast of of the bigger issues. I mean, that said, it was a five-page report. I mean, he, he, he could have read it on the toilet, frankly. It's not, you know, it's not that time demanding. But the second point that was made by Chris Bryant there about how you're not repeatedly turning up to Parliament for Prime Minister's questions, Michael, where do you sit on that? Because, of course, this argument that we have all these crises, all these challenges, all these demands which are competing on the Prime Minister's time and his mental bandwidth, I mean, that's an argument to say, well, actually, I don't need to be scrutinised by legislators in the House of Commons every week. So where do you sit on that? Do you think he gave a, a sufficiently good excuse or is it just something that is unacceptable in, in a democracy? Well, the NATO summit is clearly a good enough excuse. Um, the the NHS celebration, I mean, it seems a little bit silly for all these guys to be going to a church service for the NHS after they've defunded it for, for, for 12 years and refusing to pay nurses what they need to retain them right so so going to war with nurses which the tories have done and then going to a church service to celebrate the nhs all seems to me somewhat shallow politics at the same time i do think that you know chris bryant and you always get it from the speaker as well where they're sort of admonishing the government for making an announcement not first to mps but to the media blah 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 blah, blah. um who cares when it's about leaking stories to your favorite journalists i think that's corrupting because that's about creating connections which are too close and bad incentives between the media and, and politicians. But when it's just they announced the new NHS staffing plan in a press conference instead of the Houses of Parliament, I don't really care. And the fact that he's missed two PMQs in a row, again, it's, it's I'm not going to lose any sleep over it, let's say. I'm not going to lose any sleep. Neither will I, Michael, don't worry. Another topic raised in that liaison committee is a scandal we recently discussed on our show. Local housing allowances have been frozen since 2020, meaning people on benefits are unable to keep up with rapidly increasing rents. This recent ITV report features some of those affected. An afternoon nap is an essential part of Elsie's day. But right now, where this one-year-old lays her little head is changing by the day. Her and her mom, Holly, are homeless. Today, they are staying at Holly's mum's, but she can only offer a sofa. So Holly is packing up, preparing to stay at a friend's who has a spare bed for a few days. This has been their life now for weeks, because she cannot find anywhere affordable to rent in her hometown of Thanet in Kent. I feel like I'm literally trapped in a life that I didn't want, because no matter what I do, I've applied for 
over 20 properties in total. I don't see anything changing unless I physically take myself out of the area. Just talk me through how so, you, what you look at. I do this once a day. Mm -hmm. Holly is a single mum. She worked before having Elsie, but now relies on housing benefit to afford rent. Obviously, the cheapest is 795. I've actually applied for that one and got turned down because of my income is not high enough for them. But housing benefit has been frozen since 2020, while the cost of rent in Thanet has gone up and up. I think I applied for about 31 and I had an answer off one. Laurie is 62. Her husband, Fred, is 72. In February, they were evicted from the home they rented for 12 years because the landlord wanted to sell. They're just so expensive. They receive £500 a month in housing benefit, but they couldn't afford anywhere close to their budget. They were put in a hotel for three months by the council, then given this temporary property, plagued with problems. Mould, bedbugs, at times no hot water and inaccessible for their needs. We just want somewhere decent, clean, that we can just live a quiet life, not a massive house. You work for years for it, you just feel everything has been taken away from you. And all you've got left is your pride, and I think that goes <laughs> to a certain extent. It's very hard, very hard. And yet, in another way, you're lucky we have a roof over our heads. Coventry City Council say they recognise the property is not ideal and would support Laurie and Fred to move should somewhere become available. These issues, they say, are not specific to Coventry. Just a heartbreaking video. And what I found really powerful about that was the fact that you have a young mum and you have an older couple. And it just shows how everybody is impacted by the housing crisis. And particularly with the, the older couple, this is the future for generation rent. And I'll be quick with this, but it's something that we do not talk about enough in this country. Right now, the model for retirement and elderly care is owning a home. You unlock the equity in your home, you can pay for elderly care. But the problem is when you rent is that not only do you pay to rent while you're working, you also aren't accumulating value in an asset for when you retire. By contrast, rather than actually having that asset, you still have to pay rent after you retire. It's a problem. And of course, because home ownership is falling and we have the rise of generation rent, when those people retire, we are storing up massive, massive problems. Uh, Rishi Sunak was questioned by MPs on this very issue. Since 2020, the local housing allowance, which helps the poorest families pay for the rent in the private rented sector, has been frozen. Yet at the same time, rents in the private rented sector have risen by 25%. There's now only one in 20 homes that are covered by the local housing allowance. How is it fair for government policy to impact so severely on the poorest families who no longer can pay for the rent uh, of most homes in the private rented sector with the allowances that are available to them? So, look, I, I can't remember precisely, but I think we increased the local housing allowance a couple of years ago by very significant amount. I thought it frozen was, since uh, 2020 pounds. Yeah, but, but it was it frozen at a level that was significantly higher than it was before, where it was about a 600 pound uplift to, from memory, about a million and a half Doesn't help families with a 25% rent increase, they can't pay for it. So, uh, and actually there's the discretionary housing payments of a few hundred million pounds that are there to support people as well as on top of, uh, on top of housing benefit. And the Affordable Homes Programme has delivered thousands of new affordable homes for rent and will continue and will continue to do but, so but as well. But affordable homes are 80% of market rents, Prime Minister. They're not affordable to most people, are they, on the lowest incomes? I look at it, it's a question of how you're targeting that support. But as I said, the, the, the Affordable Homes Programme, I think it's over £11 billion over its period. It's significantly higher than the one that it replaced. It's supporting thousands of new affordable homes for rent, uh, together with housing benefit, discretionary housing payments, um, you know, all that support is that. But, but even public service workers, uh, nurses, policemen, others can't afford affordable rents in London, can they? 80% of market rents are just not within the remit of many public service workers struggling on their current levels of pay. Yes, which is why on the other side we've taken huge steps to help people with their energy bills, which is saving them around £1,500. 
um, over the past few months, uh, raising the national living wage by record levels to put more money in their pockets, raising the threshold at which people start paying national insurance. You know, all of those things also put more money in people's pockets. I think a lot of people will think, Prime Minister, you're not really on their side. This is a great way to end that clip. Michael, the Tories have in their defence, I'm not going to defend the Tories because they're failing in many ways, but they have spent a lot of money on things like furlough and more recently with energy bills. But the fact is that people's living standards are collapsing. They're in free fall. So effectively, if people don't mind me using this phrase, they're, they're pissing in the wind, aren't they? And I also, I, I just thought that answer was incredibly dishonest as well. I mean, as I was saying, I wasn't particularly incensed by him not having read the whole Privileges Committee report into anyone. Um, him not seeming to be in any way aware that housing benefit has been frozen for the past three years, I think that is unforgivable, right? Because as you saw in those those clips from ITV News, um, from a great journalist, Dan Hewitt, is often putting out really sort of powerful clips about housing in this country. This is something which is affecting so many people up and down the country and affecting them almost every minute of the day. You know, looking at that old couple who was saying, you know, we, we just want to live a normal, ordinary, humble life. Um, this has taken away all of our pride. This is destroying us. And Rishi Sunak's like, oh, didn't we? I, I think we increased that a couple of years ago, didn't we? No, did we? Uh, you know, it's, it's just so offensive. And also I was looking up what, what they did do three years ago, right? So Rishi Sunak seems to think, job done. They sorted it all out in 2020. It's fine to freeze it from there. So in 2020, what they did, it was sort of part of the coronavirus package, announced a bit of extra money so that housing benefit would cover 30% of local properties. So they're sort of pegging housing benefit at just enough so you can afford the bottom 30% of, of, of properties in any location. Now, so, so that's not much, right? You're, you're still going to struggle to find those houses, but it's not appalling. What did they do since then? They froze it. So if it could afford 30% of properties in 2020, what's going to happen when they rise by at least 25% in the intervening period, which they have, that's why they can now only pay for 4% of properties in any local area. So you've got these people on housing benefit. By the way, 38% of private renters do claim housing benefit of some form or another. Lots of people, they'll be topping it up with their own income. But you've got people on housing benefit who are competing for the bottom 4% of housing in any location. Like, this is insane. And he is just there saying, oh, I don't know. I'm sure it's fine. We gave him a bit of money off their energy bills. This is a guy who had to upgrade um, the energy system in a local area so that he could heat his pool, right? This is someone who is a billionaire. And he is so, so dismissive of the fact that there are so many people whose lives are being ruined by the fact that, yes, increasing housing benefit isn't the solution to the housing crisis. The solution to the housing crisis is building a lot more homes, especially building a lot more council homes. But People need to live somewhere now. And if people need to live somewhere now, you can't just say, oh, we're just going to freeze benefits and see what happens. I mean, we've seen what happens. It was in those clips. Yeah, it's really it's really important to remember just how rich Rishi is. His wife was a non-dom until quite recently. You know, he had a green card to work in the United States. This is somebody who is a member of, you know, the global 0.01% of the transnational capitalist class of the elite. And, and, and the way you tethered that, Michael, to the example of his pool is is spot on. You know, often we'll criticise the Labour Party, we'll criticise politicians just generally for being out of touch, uh, for not being able to know what people's experiences are like out there. You know, food inflation, 20, 25%, or if it's cheese, it's 30%, not being able to find somewhere to live. You know, I moved 15 times in 15 years when I was renting in London. That's something I will never forget, ever. But somebody like Rishi Sunak literally has no idea what any of that means. He looks at those people, we saw on that ITV clip, as numbers on a spreadsheet. Next story. Labour has abstained on the second reading of the government's anti-BDS bill. The bill would ban public bodies from making procurement or investment decisions based on any ethical judgment about the practices of a foreign state. And it particularly targets anyone boycotting Israel. As Michael Gove set out the government position on Monday, he cited some well-known Labour figures. On social media, Hashtags such as hashtag BDS, hashtag boycott Israel and hashtag free Palestine are regularly used by people posting anti-Semitic tweets and comments. That is why Labour Friends of Israel have rightly stated that BDS damages communal relations and fosters anti-Semitism at home, while doing nothing to further the cause of peace and reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians. Public bodies should not be singling out the world's only Jewish state for boycotts. Luke Akehurst, 
A Labour NEC member, speaking in a personal capacity, has also argued that we should welcome the government's proposed bill to end the ability of public sector bodies to carry out boycotts and divestment. Mr Akehurst added, I'm against BDS more widely because it deepens the divisions in the Middle East conflict rather than encouraging dialogue and coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians. BDS demonises and delegitimises Israel. I agree with Labour Friends of Israel. I agree with Luke Aitkrust. I agree with the Board of Deputies. I agree with the Jewish Leadership Council, all of whom back this bill. I agree with the French government and the German government that have taken action against the BDS movement. And I agree with all 50 governors of all US states, Democrat and Republican, who have also denounced the BDS movement. The question is, for every member of this House, do you stand with us against anti-Semitism or not? Just absolutely extraordinary. By citing those governments and states, Michael Gove was trying to make his legislation seem unremarkable. But it is a serious attack on freedom, and also, quite frankly, bizarre. Take a look at this clause. Look at point five of the legislation. It says the Secretary of State or the Minister for the Cabinet Office may, by regulations, specify a country or territory as one in relation to which Section 1 does not apply. Now, Section 1 here refers to the main part of the law, which prohibits public bodies from boycotting other states. What point five here means is that the government of the day can add exceptions to the law. For example, the government could make an exception for Russia, and then with a local council could divest from that country. But, and this is key, point seven demands that there is one entity for which no exception can ever be made. Israel, the occupied Palestinian territories, and the occupied Golan Heights. It looks like an obviously bad law, but instead of rejecting it that right, Labour proposed an amendment. Lisa Nandy set out the party's position. We have provided the government with an alternative. Earlier this year, we sought to amend the, public, the procurement bill in order to ensure that no single country especially in the cases that we've been describing today, the world's only Jewish state can be singled out for different standards to others and in doing so, whip up hate and hostility against the Jewish community. It's a real problem. We provided the government with a solution. They refused it. But we remain convinced that cooperation and consensus is the right approach to tackle what we accept is a very real problem. Now, today, the Secretary of State will hear this refrain again and again from members on his own backbenches and across the House, that we should never seek to pit two important principles, the need to tackle racism, anti-Semitism, which is a scourge in our society, and the need to stand up for human rights, freedom of expression, democracy and our long-standing position when it comes to Israel and Palestine and act in accordance with international law. They should never be things that we see as mutually exclusive or allowed to be pitted against one yeah. another. We have a number of serious suggestions about the way in which this problem can be tackled. We have outlined an alternative approach. We have provided him with a solution and we urge him to take it. Otherwise, he should know that we will be compelled to vote against this bill at third reading, as I suspect will significant numbers of his own colleagues. It is an outcome that we should all strive to avoid. If a pledge to tackle division around which there is broad consensus was derailed by a combative approach and a government that refused to listen to the wide range of voices that have expressed their concerns, that would be a crying shame. But with goodwill and good faith, on the part of the government, we can proceed together. We have proposed how. The ball is now in his court. There isn't consensus. There isn't agreement. Some people are perfectly fine with one entity occupying another, uh, having settlements which contravene international law. And the question is, can people in this country undertake peaceful protests and civil action in response? This law would say no. The amendment Nandy was referring to was this. This House, while opposing any discrimination or prejudice in the economic activities of public bodies, 
believing that all such bodies must act without bias or selectivity when making ethical decisions on procurement and investment and recognizing the impact selective and biased campaigns have had on the Jewish community in particular, declines to give a second reading to the economic activity of public bodies overseas matters bill because the bill risks significantly undermining support for groups around the world facing persecution. For example, the Uyghur, who are currently victims of grave and systemic human rights abuses. The bill is incompatible with international law and the due diligence of public bodies, undermines the UK's long-standing cross-party position in respect to the occupied Palestinian territories and Golan Heights by conflating these with the State of Israel and running counter to UN Security Council resolutions, singles out the State of Israel in effect creating the issue it intends to solve, seeks to enforce its provisions by giving unprecedented powers to the Secretary of State beyond those enjoyed by the police and the security services. The bill places unprecedented restrictions on the ability of public bodies, many of them directly elected, to express a view on policy, current proposed and desired, has potential widespread and negative impacts on local government pension funds, limits freedom of speech, and is likely to be subject to repeated and extended legal challenges by reason of its conflict with established legal principles, and therefore urges the government to bring forward alternative proposals. It's unclear how the government could come back with a bill which limits BDS, which Labour seems to want, and doesn't also limit our freedoms. But that's the tightrope Labour have decided to walk. Crispin Blunt offered a bolder form of opposition to the bill. Today we see the terrible events in Janine, which are a product of, uh, of the disaster that, and false horizon that Oslo process has turned out to be for the uh, for the Palestinian people, um, and the desperate anger that is in uh, within the uh, occupied uh, parts of Palestine, where everything is being taken away from them. And here we are attacking what is uh, the, directly uh, a movement that has, of course, there are elements that are unacceptable in this rhetoric, but um, they are uh, trying to stay within the limits of peaceful resistance to illegal occupation. And I think it would be thought to be absolutely astonishing that we are faced with this uh, measure today in the British Parliament. Blunt was one of only two Tory MPs who voted against the bill on its second reading. Two. Only 10 Labour MPs voted against it, with the rest being whipped to abstain. Labour have not made clear whether they will vote against the bill on its third reading, after which it would become law. I just feel that Labour's position on this is just extraordinary and inexplicable. If something is going to undermine civil liberties, if something is going to stoke, in their claim, um, uh, tensions domestically between various communities in this country, if they believe that it's being instrumentalised to attack political opponents while actually making anti-Semitism worse, I, I don't understand why, why, would you, why would you not vote against it. Of course, there'll be a third reading and maybe they will do it then. But this is just an appalling piece of legislation. And, and Michael Gove did a very interesting thing a, a few months ago. We shared that clip. Very interesting. He made this elision of saying, these people condemn it. Why won't you support this legislation? Two different things, Michael. It's one thing to condemn something in a free society. You're more than welcome to do that. It's another thing for legislators to constitutionally remove the ability of local government and local councils and elected local officials from reflecting the democratic will of the people they represent. A huge difference, a world of difference. But that's something lost, I uh, suspect, on Conservative MPs like Mr. Gov. The anti-BDS bill was introduced on the same day Israel launched its biggest incursion into the West Bank in 20 years. That attack on Janine was followed today by a car ramming and stabbing in Tel Aviv by a Palestinian man that injured nine people. For more on the anti-BDS bill, this is Emily Hilton, UK Director of Diaspora Alliance, an international organization dedicated to combating anti-Semitism and its politicization. You know, there's been a really clear narrative pushed by the government in particular that somehow um, keeping Jewish people safe is predicated on oppressing Palestinians or silencing Palestinian advocacy, you know, and this simply just isn't true. You know, these kinds of methods, this sort of instrumentalization of the struggle against anti-Semitism for these kinds of political aims is actually uh, very dangerous for Jewish people in that it, it, it provides, it, it, the government is using Jewish people as a cover for their own anti-Palestinian politics.
when, you know, we know that numerous Jewish groups have spoke, spoken out against the bill, including sort of more mainstream sort of center, center left groups as well, not just sort of left wing Jewish groups. So it's, it's really not even a true reflection of what Jewish people believe uh, in relation to this bill. Um, but secondly, you know, we can never be in a position where any group safety is predicated on the oppression of another people. Like the, the struggle for Palestinian freedom and the, the real struggle for Jewish safety is part of a broader um, fight for collective liberation and equality and democracy for everyone. Um, and that's really what we should be should be striving for, not these kinds of divisive bills that sort of position Jewish people or Jewish people's safety as predicated on sort of restricting our rights and freedoms, but and also sort of clamping down on Palestine solidarity. That is, in fact, deeply dangerous for Jewish people in Britain uh, and you know across the world, frankly. Listening to the reading last night, the second reading last night, sort of politicians getting up and talking about, you know, why we need to clamp down on BDS at a time when, you know, we are seeing sort of tanks rolling into a Janine refugee camp. We see families fleeing their homes. Um, it was frankly alarming. It was an alarming uh, backdrop of which sort of this draconian legislation is being played out in our politics. Now more than ever, we need to have very clear, non-violent accountability mechanisms for holding Israel accountable for the way that it's violating international law, violating human rights, um, sort of attacking Palestinian people. But also, like you know, what's happened in Tel Aviv is also indicative of how, like these repressive regimes, you know, they that that is violence comes out of that, and that like the only way to sort of ensure a just peace in Palestine and Israel is to ensure an end to occupation and freedom and equality and justice for everyone who lives between the river and the sea, um, and also refugees, obviously, who were forced to flee in 48 as well. Like this is, this is a systemic problem, and it requires a systemic solution, and that is sort of an end to the systems in place that are inherently sort of repressive and oppressive. You know, there were a number of MPs who spoke out in opposition to the bill last night, which we thought was very positive, um, and who recognized it. But we, it's also, first of all, it's very important that um, opposition is is given to this bill not only on the basis of the, the collective the the, imp the impact or the consequences on our collective rights to protest, but also ensuring that you know Palestinian solidarity is, and and that is sort of also at the forefront of the public discussions around this debate. You know we, we need to make sure that it's not left out of the conversation um, as it sometimes can be. Yeah, we would encourage all MPs to be opposing this bill, and we you know we have seen there's like real concern I think in the Commons um, around the nature of this legislation, around the fact that. You know, the, the broad reaching implications, the sort of the way in which it was presented to the House, it was clear that people were deeply uncomfortable by that. And we now need, you know, our political our political leaders and our, and our sort of political representatives to have the moral courage to do the right thing and oppose this at the third reading. That was Emily Hilton there from Diaspora Alliance. Before I go to you, Michael, I just want to show what was probably the most unpleasant speech in Parliament yesterday. That's really saying something. It was from Steve McCabe, Director of Labour Friends of Israel. Boycotts aren't new for Jews. On April the 1st this year, we marked the 90th anniversary of the Nazis' first nationwide action against the Jews, a boycott targeting Jewish businesses and professionals. There's a long, dark history of boycotts directed against Jewish people. For the world's only Jewish state to be targeted in this way shows complete indifference to that history and a single-minded determination to destroy Israel's right to exist. Michael, how would you respond to that clip? I just think it's so grotesque like the the cynicism with which to say that there is any connection between uh, a nazi boycott of jewish shops and the boycott of a nation state which is currently you know practicing the longest occupation in the world right now right they've been occupying so you know people who are anti-zionist might see it as an occupation since 1947 the un sort of everyone sees that there has been an occupation of of the West Bank and other Palestinian territories since 1967. So, so there's been a, an occupation which has gone on for at least 50 years, right? And uh, the idea that, oh, so they're boycotting them because they're Jewish. The inspiration people obviously get for the BDS movement is South Africa. It's not Nazi Germany. It's they saw a country which was practicing apartheid. And then in the 1980s, many bodies um, boycotted South African produce. And people feel that that had a role in bringing down apartheid government in South Africa. Now, the South Africa example is why this law is so nasty, frankly, 
Because when it came to South Africa, it was a civil society-led movement. So if it were the case that people would have to have waited for the government to give them permission to boycott South Africa, then that movement wouldn't have worked. Because Margaret Thatcher was actually very sort of late in the game to, to come and stand up against South African apartheid. She really dragged drag her heels. So if, if it had been the case that civil society wouldn't have been able to take that civil action without government permission, then the apartheid regime could have lasted a lot longer than it did, right? And what's, I mean, as you pointed out, Aaron, there, what's, what's even stranger about this law is it's not just saying you need government permission to carry out these boycotts, which is draconian enough already. It's saying whatever government is elected in future, there's one country, and actually not just country, one sort of entity, because it includes the occupied Palestinian territories and occupied Golan Heights, right? Well, it, it, the idea that even if a government comes into power in the future um, and, and decides that you know, Israel is like Russia, or Israel is like South Africa, whatever, they still will not be able to allow local authorities to boycott Israel. It's, it's just astonishing. And it's so cynical. I think it's so, so deeply cynical that I am surprised that, well, I'm not surprised because I've sort of seen how the Board of Deputies have behaved over the past few years. But the idea that you would want Israel to be singled out like that in a piece of legislation does just seem, well, it's either stupid or cynical, but it's, it's, it's an incredibly unpleasant law. The timing of it is deeply offensive after you're seeing the, well, while you're seeing the biggest incursion in the West Bank in 20 years. And I, I think the whole thing is is despicable. And the idea that Labour are trying to say, oh, well, there could be an anti-BDS bill that would be okay is completely bullshit. I think that's very well described. And also the point that Steve McCabe says there about, it's the world's only Jewish state. Guess what, Steve? That's the point of Israel. It's a homeland for the Jewish people. So if there were, if there were two Jewish states what, you, you would be okay with it? It's just such a dumb talking point, which you just repeatedly hear on the media nonstop because nobody thinks independently about this kind of stuff. And also we're told, quite rightly, don't equate Jewish people and Israel, don't think they're one and the same, which of course they're not. And yet that's precisely what these people do. Extraordinary. Next story. Murray Black was elected in 2015 as the MP for Paisley and Renfrewshire South. In winning that seat, she became the youngest member of parliament at just 20 years old. But more than that, she became the youngest MP since the Act of Parliament 300 years ago. Black's youth meant she came to be viewed as synonymous with the SNP's extraordinary results that night, as they won 56 out of 59 seats in Scotland. The conclusion was clear, that independence and those driving it were the future. But speaking today with Emily Maitlis on the News Agents podcast, Miss Black announced the next step in her political career. You're not going to stand not for the SNP? No. I'm stepping down at the next election. Why? Honestly, because I don't... I'm tired is a big part of it. And the thing that makes me tired is Westminster, I think, is one of the most unhealthy workplaces that you could ever be in. It's a toxic environment. It is... It, just the entire design of the place and how it functions is just the opposite of everything that I find comfortable. Toxic is a strong word. It means poisonous. Mm. Yep, absolutely. It's definitely a poisonous place, <laughs> whether that's because of, uh, you know, what folk can get away with in it or what the, the number of um, sort of personal motivations and, you know, folk having ulterior motives for things and it's just it's it's just not a nice place to be in. What does that mean? You don't you don't trust people? You don't trust your colleagues there? No, I mean of course there's I work with very closely with colleagues, but I suppose I'm talking more about how it's difficult to know if somebody's certainly from other parties is talking to you because there's a genuine relationship there or whether they're looking for opportunities. You know, so you can never really switch off when you're in Westminster. And also, given the, I suppose, unsociable hours that Westminster works as well, it feels like you're spending a lot of your life there. And in the run-up to the next election, I've realised that'll be almost 10 years that I'll have been elected. So a third of my life I've spent in Westminster, which gives me the ick. Yeah, you are you are too young to be tired this early. <laughs> I, I mean, to, to remind mm -hmm. our listeners, you were twenty yep. when you won your seat. You were the youngest person to be elected, I think, since the Act of Parliament. Mm -hmm. Three hundred years. Yeah, as far as I'm aware. 
so much to talk about from that clip. And that's before noting Emily Maitlis's Varsity-style Princess Diana jacket. But more importantly, the description of Parliament as toxic is an extraordinary claim for someone who is an MP and says they're leaving because of that toxicity. I think Parliament is toxic. Most of my colleagues here at Media do too. But for a departing MP to say as much, I think he's genuinely new and says a lot. Michael, the fact that Mario Black says her youth gives her a particular perspective on Westminster dysfunction is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I, I suppose it also depends on whether you're a career politician, right? Because a lot of people who sort of, you know, they go through as an advisor, I'm thinking of West Streeting, basically, you know, you go, you go, you, you climb up the ladder of NUS politics, and you're an advisor, then you work in all of these political organisations, your life is sort of being part of these factional wars, and you sort of come to understand that this is what politics is about. So if you arrive there without having gone through, you know, that whole system, and also having been inclined to it, frankly, because you know, most people who become US president, I mean, it will change, but sort of through Labour students and that sort of particular route, you're going to be somewhat inclined towards sort of factional manoeuvring. And if you have, as Myrie Black did, kind of landed in Parliament almost accidentally, you know, so it was, it, it was relevant that she was, she was sort of first elected in that SNP landslide because there were lots of MPs that they didn't necessarily expect to, to win or lots of candidates, I should say, that they didn't expect to win. So her getting there without that background and seeing how toxic the whole thing is, I think is incredibly relevant. I mean, it would be interesting to see how this sort of compares in, in, in different countries and different places. I mean, it might be the case that where you've got proportional representation and, and people are more likely to, to work with each other as opposed to constantly against each other. Um, that could create more of a sort of functional working environment where people are talking about actually solving the problems that we face in this country instead of getting one over on each other. Um, I, I, I'm not confident to say it wouldn't be toxic in, in, in many places. And I can also imagine that being an MP at 20, um, in many countries, you would probably want to quit by 30, right? Because that is a, a significant period of your life in the public eye doing a very demanding, high-stress job. But no, I mean, absolutely. I'm sure there are many improvements that could be made to make Parliament less toxic. And that wouldn't just have an effect on the people in there. I mean, obviously, I have some compassion towards Myrie Black, but my political priorities aren't how can we make the lives of MPs nicer. But I think if we could make Westminster more focused on solving the country's problems as opposed to having stupid rows with each other, that would probably be helpful. Besides that interview with the News Agents podcast, Black also published a statement on social media where she said this, Watching people in my constituency being continually harmed by a UK government they never voted for, despite my best efforts to fight against its cruel policies, is beyond demoralising. While representing this brilliant constituency is a true honour, this aspect is painful and would take its toll on anyone who cares as it has me. Since 2015, the lives of my loved ones have been turned upside down and inside out. Between media attention, social media abuse, threats, constant travel, and the murder of two MPs, my loved ones have been in a constant state of anxiety for my health and safety. They have always encouraged me to follow my gut and to do what makes me happy. It is for these reasons that I decided some time ago that the 2019 election will be my last term. As my parents grow older and I embark on married life, I have reassessed my personal priorities. I sincerely hope folk will understand my wish to spend more time with my loved ones in a safer environment as I pass the baton to the next candidate. So concerns around her personal safety and well-being accompany wider misgivings Black has regarding Westminster and the political process. No mention is made of what she plans to do next, and the inference in that final passage is she may withdraw from politics to some extent ahead of the next election. Very sad to see. Mario Black was uh, one of a number of politicians who entered politics after 2015. And I remember the leadership debates in 2017 with uh, Caroline Lucas and Leanne Wood. There was Mario Black too, Jeremy Corbyn. And it felt like something was shaking up British politics that seems to have subsided. Final story. Inflation is high and for most people, real wages are falling. Britain needs a pay rise is the line you'll hear from trade unionists or left-wing journalists on the telly. But for some MPs, the focus on wage increases is a little close to home. Every few months, one of them says, we don't earn enough, we can't get the best people. Of course, that's a stupid argument. The former CEO of Thames Water, who recently quit, was on a salary of £1.5 million a year. It didn't seem to make that much difference. And it's important to say that the basic salary for MPs is presently £86,000 a year, and they recently received a £2,400 pay rise in April. 
The latest parliamentarian to moan about not earning enough is former Chancellor Sajid Javid. Speaking at an event hosted by Whitehall think tank, the Institute for Government, he said this. If I had my way, I would halve the number of MPs and double the salaries. That wouldn't cost the taxpayer a penny and you would get a much higher quality of parliament and ministers. Now, at the moment, a key part of the job for MPs is casework. If there's a really pressing issue, you can contact your MP. Many people do. And so it's a big part of the job. They have staff members committed to addressing casework. Given each constituency is presently around 80,000 people, what Javid is proposing here is to make that 160,000 people. That's twice the amount of casework for every MP and their office. Now, maybe Javid would say MPs' offices should have loads more resources to deal with people's needs. Or maybe, just maybe, he doesn't think the little people matter in politics. This point he's made as well is just utterly surreal when you consider we have around 900 lords in our second chamber, and as far as I know, he doesn't want to scrap that either. He certainly doesn't think ordinary people should be MPs too. We know that because he went on to say this. You tend to get in Parliament either really rich people who don't need money and therefore don't care if their salary is 88,000 or 28,000, or you'll get people that were earning sort of 30,000 pounds a year. 80,000 is a big jump, but they might not come with the skills that Parliament needs. You get all sorts of people in Parliament, even those losers who earn the average salary. Imagine that. Teachers, nurses, maybe even manual workers. I know it's crazy. Don't fall over laughing. Who next? The Chuckle Brothers? Being serious for a moment, I'm interested in what skills MPs need precisely. Are they the skills Javid learned at Deutsche Bank, where he reputedly earned three million pounds a year before becoming an MP? Oh, you might have worked in the NHS, or you might have actually built something with your own hands. You've got the calluses to prove it, but I'm afraid you don't have the necessary skills for politics. This thinking only makes sense if you believe that the ideal skill set for politicians is to basically say yes to whatever the financial services industry wants. We want lower regulation, sure. We want lower taxes on the rich, no problem. Can you make sure that people pay more taxes for work than wealth? Absolutely. Wow, you're really good at politics. You have a great skill set. Why, thank you. This might sound like a joke, but it's genuinely how many people within the establishment think including Sajid Javid. It's just he's been stupid enough to say it openly. To have the right calibre of people in politics, we need a basic salary of £176,000 a year, almost six times the average wage. How else do you expect people to leave the banking industry and deregulate stuff to make their mates rich? Michael, should MP pay start at £176,000 a year? No. <laughs> no, absolutely shouldn't. <laughs> I don't think anyone's looking at Westminster and thinking, you know what we need? We need more people from the banking sector and people who work in consultancy. Because that's who you're going to bring over, right? Not Very, very few people are on um, or, or are going to see sort of 86K as not much money or 88K or whatever it is, right? You, you Top doctors, lawyers, all, all of these people with decent jobs, you know, they might be on a similar amount. They're not going to be taking a massive pay cut to become an MP. Well, you've got to remember you get expenses as an MP, right? So it's, it's there, there are very few other jobs where you get those expenses. The one argument I do see, which um, would be, you know, where I can see like, oh, it, it would be unpopular for MPs to do it, but it might make sense, is increasing their budget to sort of employ more staff. Um, I've, I think it might make sense to have more policy experts who are working in, in Parliament. It seems like sometimes you don't have enough people to sort of scrutinise the legislation properly. And if we're thinking about why good people like Myrie Black are leaving, maybe if you did give them a bit more staff so that they could, you know, employ people to do some of the different elements of the jobs that they're not expert in, that could make sense. But the idea that we should be putting more money in MPs' pockets when everyone else is taking a pay cut is completely offensive, frankly, especially as MPs have had their incomes protected over the past decade when everyone else has been stagnating. So MPs are always like, so it's, it's not us who decide that the, the, the wage goes up, it's this independent committee. Yeah, but that's not how it works for everyone else, right? So, so they're protected against inflation, other workers aren't, and now they want another pay rise. I've got a question for our, our audience watching this and listening to it. Would you feel more confident in the political system if uh, we had half the MPs, but they were earning twice as much, more than £175,000 a year? Would you think that's a, a step in the right direction? Because, of course, with First Past the Post, what we hear all the time is the, the importance of the constituency link. 
So if your if your MP was earning that much money, would you would you feel that there's a connection between you and them? Let me know in the comments. Uh, sticking with this uh, for a moment, I have a question: Who is the most impressive government in modern history? Who had the most enduring legacy? Some people might say Thatcher or Blair or Wilson. I think they're wrong because the obvious answer is the Labour government of 1945. Almost 80 years later, there is so much they introduced which we still have, from child benefits to the NHS. Ernest Bevan, the guy who spearheaded this country's drive to develop a nuclear weapon as foreign secretary, previously worked as a labourer and lorry driver. Meanwhile, Nye Bevan, the godfather of the NHS, had been a miner. He wasn't the grandson of a miner. This wasn't a catchphrase being used by somebody on LinkedIn. He was an actual miner. One person was responsible for Britain getting the atom bomb. I don't like nuclear weapons, but that's a big deal. The other for the NHS. What Conservative MP has recently achieved anything on a remotely similar scale, Mr. Javid? Furlough, perhaps. Sunak would say so. But when they were confronted with the pandemic, the government were a walking, talking catastrophe. The logical conclusion, if we're to look at the last several years, is the complete opposite of what he's saying. In fact, we need more people with backgrounds in manual and care work rather than financial services, consultancy, and these other Mickey Mouse jobs they seem to have. Michael, quickly, if Javid is wrong here, then how do we get those better MPs, which I think broadly everyone seems to agree on these days? Yeah, I mean, those examples are instructive, right? So Bevin and Bevan, that was when the Labour Party had a very strong organic connection to a very, very vibrant and dynamic Labour movement. So those were people who, who, who rose up in trade unions, which are incredibly meritocratic organisations. It, it's no coincidence that it's often trade union leaders who are much more convincing speakers than people who end up in the Labour shadow cabinet, right? I, I do think trade unions are more meritocratic than the, 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 the Labour parliamentary party at the moment, right? Um, so it would either be to to strengthen connections between the Labour Party and, and, and trade unions. But, I mean, we, we probably aren't going to have as vibrant a trade union movement now as we did in the in the 40s, right? The economy has changed. So that probably is going to mean something along the lines of open selection. So having a process whereby people don't have to sort of integrate into the factional internal dynamics of the Labour Party to get anywhere, but can instead make an independent name for themselves, um, show that they are a successful inspirational person, and then stand on those terms, not because they're unthreatening to whoever, whoever happens to be leader of the Labour Party at whatever point in time. So I think it would be something like open selections where you encourage genuinely the best, the brightest, not the people who are most desperate to earn £176,000 a year, like Sajid Javid is saying, but people who actually want to serve their communities and who also have something to say for themselves, right? Which isn't just they knew the right person and they they spent enough time licking people's asses in Labour students, right? So I think it will be about open selections, essentially. And 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 as much as it is possible, redynamizing the, the Labour movement and, and picking um, Labour candidates from there. Michael, that's why you earn the big bucks. Just kidding. We have a one-to-one staff pay ratio here at Navarra Media, but that's so, so true and a great place to end on open selections. We need to drain the swamp, open up politics to ordinary people. Wouldn't that be nice? Thanks to Michael for joining me this evening. Pleasure as always. And thanks everyone for watching this stream. Remember to come back tomorrow at 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.